From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Heart disease, it's the leading cause of death in the United States. More than 600,000 Americans die of heart disease every year. February is American Heart Month. On today's program, we'll talk with a Mayo Clinic expert about the fight against heart disease, which is still the number one killer in the U.S. About 10 years ago, the CDC said that we're going to see not enough physical activity and poor eating habits overtake smoking as the number one cause. Guess what we're finding? Also on the program, we'll learn about the three pillars of wellness that are part of the Healthy Living Program at Mayo Clinic. And we'll hear from the Mayo Clinic Radiology Department about the latest innovations in imaging. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, uh, do you remember a name, Lyndon Baines Johnson? Were you even alive when he was president of the United States? Let's just continue on. Okay, well, (laughs) let me tell you a little bit about Lyndon Baines Johnson, because it was an interesting period of time. The 1960s is when he was president, and a lot of things happened during his presidency that you may not actually be aware of. One is public broadcasting. Okay. during his administration that that came into being. Also, Medicare, Medicaid, the war on poverty, and unfortunately, escalation of the war in Vietnam, mm. which we can just overlook for now. But the for other thing about Lyndon Baines Johnson, and I'm sure you don't remember this, is he had his gallbladder out while he was president. And one of the most famous uh, photos of any president was exactly, and Dr. Kopetsky has it, he lifted up his shirt and showed everybody in the world his gallbladder scar, which of course was about a foot long. <laughs> And now, you know, most of the time they take out the gallbladder through a teeny little hole. So Lyndon Baines Johnson, an interesting character. But there's one other thing that Lyndon Baines Johnson did that you also may not be aware of, and that is that he designated February as American Heart Month. I didn't know that either. Everything you wanted to know about LBJ. According to the American Heart Association, half of all Americans have at least one major risk factor for heart disease. Heart disease is the number one killer in this country, and it has been for a long time, but we've been doing better. Until last year. Last year, the number of Americans who died of heart disease went up for the first time in a decade. So why have we stalled in the fight against heart disease? Here to tell us is Mayo Clinic Heart Specialist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kopetsky. It's good to see you. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Tom. Dr. Kopetsky, you've been on the program so many times over so many years, and it's almost always good news when it comes to heart disease, but not this year. Right. This year, we've taken a downturn, unfortunately. Now, about 10 years ago, you know, the uh, the number th- one, two, and three causes of death uh, for heart disease is the number one cause, but the way it, it happens is too much smoking, too much eating, not enough physical activity. About 10 years ago, the CDC said that in about 10 years, we're going to see not enough physical activity and poor eating habits overtake smoking as the number one cause. And that's and what's happened. Guess what we're finding. Wow. That's what we well, found. Well, they, they predicted pretty well, didn't they? They did. They're maybe off by a year, but, you know, it's not too bad. <laughs> so the smoking rate, what is it, 19, 20% now of About American that. smoke? About that. But uh, the inactivity le- level has increased as has, and, and our diet's no good well, for a lot know, of people. 
We have, I actually have a job where people pay me to sit all day. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, we don't be active. And if you look at the eating habits of adults in America, uh, about 95% of us don't eat appropriately. But look at the kids, 99.9% do not eat appropriately. Really? So yeah. it's getting worse. It's getting worse. I, not or, how about our educational efforts? What's happened there? We, we needed it. That Lyndon Baines Johnson to come up with some education well, program on diet. Well, our message is still the same we had when LBJ was president in the, in the mid-60s. You know, don't eat too much, get a lot of exercise, don't smoke, lose weight, you know, et cetera. Watch your blood pressure. Watch your cholesterol. It's the same message for 60 years, and it didn't work then, and it hasn't worked now. Why? Well, I think we've heard it too often. I mean, has anyone ever heard, don't smoke, it's bad for your heart? <laughs> you know, we've all, you know, we've all heard that. And when I talk to patients about eating, I'll say, uh, you know, I'll let me talk to you about eating for a while. They, they cross their arms like this and they kind of look at the ceiling, you know, they, they don't want to hear about it. Yeah. Really, they sort of turn you off. They well, don't want to hear it. Well, I did find once if I ask them about activity, physical activity, uh, I can say, do you, should I talk to you about exercise or should I talk to you about vigorous leisure activity? I did 10 patients one day. All 10 of them said, vigorous leisure activity. Tell me about that. <laughs> Until I told them what it was, they said, that sounds like exercise. <laughs> you just got to trick yourself. That's right. Well, it doesn't make sense to me, though, because you see so many people out walking. You see so many people at the Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center. The, the athletic club is, is packed. The, every, every facility we have here in Rochester, it seems to me there's a lot of people exercising. Yes, if you go to one of these great health facilities you just talked about, Tom, look at the people there. We all tend to go at the same time. Some of us go at 5 a.m., some go after work, some go over lunch. But look at the people. You'll see the same people over and over and over again. All right, so we know that uh, we mentioned at the beginning that 50% of us, 50% of adult Americans have at least one risk factor, major risk factor for heart disease. So what are those? Well, the big risk factors we've always thought about are... Um, your cholesterol, your smoking, certainly your blood pressure, uh, your genes, the family history, things we can't change, and then things like diabetes. One thing we don't ask about much, though, is your physical activity and mm -hmm. how fit you are. Mm -hmm. And there's been recent articles written that that's the forgotten risk factor because we can all get in better shape in just a few days, a few weeks. In fact, there are many studies that show doing vigorous interval activity three or four minutes, three or four times a week for 12 weeks will increase your fitness by 20%. Now, Tracy, if I said, listen, I would like you to increase your total financial worth by 20% in 12 <laughs> weeks, you'd say, how do I do it? I'll Let me do sign it. Sign me up. Sign me up. But you can increase your fitness in by 20% in just 12 weeks with a few minutes a, a day for three days a week as compared to an hour a day of just regular walking. So, yeah, let's just go, let's say if people are walking, we'll make it this as easy as possible. Right. If you're walking, what should you do to increase that heart benefit? Well, if you're walking outside, find a tree, a post, a sign, and say I'm going to walk real fast towards that, as okay. fast as I can. And so fast that I'm going to say to myself, this is really hard. I mm -hmm. can't keep this up. Then when you get really tired, slow down. Get your breath back and then do it again. Those okay. are called intervals. Okay. And, and so for that, sorry. I'm just going to say, and for 30 seconds, you want to be doing that as fast as you can? At least 30 seconds, two minutes. Okay. Good. All right. And that's as good as doing a, an hour's worth of regular walking. Is that what you're saying? Uh, I'm saying if you do really intense for 30 seconds, I mean, just go all out. And that's not for everybody, of course. But it's for young, healthy guys like you, Tom. You can do that. <laughs> 
but go sure all out for 30 seconds. Uh, do it three times and do that uh, you know, at a, at a time and then do it three times a week. That's been shown to be as effective as getting you in shape as doing an hour of walking three times a week. Cholesterol. Uh, you mentioned that as a significant risk factor. So explain to us uh, total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, triglycerides. Give us a little refresher course on it's that. It's alphabet soup. The, uh, the thing is, remember that HDL is the high-density lipoprotein. HDL, you want that to be high. That's the good stuff. Good that, cholesterol. The good cholesterol. And we all have Every cell in our body has cholesterol in it. If we didn't have it, we would die. So every cell has it. The low-density lipoprotein, you want that to be very low. That's the bad cholesterol that clogs up the arteries. The, the lousy. Mm-hmm. The lousy DL. Lousy. <laughs> Perfect. The triglycerides are the things that go up and down almost daily, within hours. They go down when you are active physically. They go up when you eat some carbohydrates and too many calories. All right, so we've got that all figured out. And an ideal level of cholesterol, are most tests the, the same around the country? I mean, isn't it less than 200 milligrams for whatever it is, deciliter? That's, that's normal? That's good? That's normal. That's not normal. It's not good, but it's average. All right, so you want it as low as possible. You'd like as low as possible. I have a lot of patients come in to me and say, gee, doctor, my LDL is 120. I've been told it's fine. I've been told it's normal. So it's not fine, it's not normal, but it's average. What's the average man, 60-year-old man in this country have his cholesterol when he has a heart attack? About 120, his bad cholesterol. When we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Kopetsky about the diagnosis of heart disease, how you find out if you have something wrong with your ticker, and also prevention, the key to everything. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, if you take a statin, you can eat whatever you want. Ooh, sounds good to me. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is heart specialist, cardiologist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky of the Mayo Clinic. We've been talking about the incidence of heart disease, the risk factors for heart disease. And just recently, we talked about cholesterol, and we got the the cliff notes on cholesterol. So everybody understands that now, myth or matter of fact. Yeah, well, let's, we'll talk about statins next. So myth or matter of fact, if I'm taking a statin, I can eat whatever I want. What a myth. <laughs> what a myth. It kind of gives it away when you say whatever I want. It doesn't yes. include donuts. No, I'm sorry. It does not. But if the, a recent study showed that if you are taking a statin and you are eating whatever you want, which is about 40% of the population, you really get, get no benefit of the, from the statin. All right. So it's important for our audience to, to know that a statins are to lower your cholesterol. So uh, when do you decide? I know there are several different statins out there. Isn't it the, the number one prescribed drug in this country now? Yes. Or pretty close. It used and, to be Valium, but you know, yeah. that's down to those anti-anxiety medications. They are. are number two, but statin's number one, right? And the last statin just went generic about uh, three weeks ago. So, in other words, it's much less expensive than it used to be. Correct. All right. So who takes a statin? Who should take a statin? Well, certainly if you have disease, if you have a heart attack, if you have any uh, signs of disease, like a narrowing of one of your arteries that your doctor may hear on a physical exam, that's worth it. If you have a lot of risk factors, like if you're a diabetic, you have high blood pressure, or you're an elderly man in this country over age 60, you should, odds are you may be benefited by a statin. The third group is the patients that have genetic reasons for high cholesterol, and that's a different group, but they clearly need to be on a statin. Is it true that most cardiologists believe that there is no such thing as too low a cholesterol? So even if you were in the normal range, it, it might not hurt you and might be good for you to take a statin? 
Well, to put things in perspective, when you're born, your bad cholesterol is about 50. When you have your first heart attack, it's about 120. <laughs> We've done things to our body that isn't good. Recent studies have shown that uh, cholesterol's blo- uh, bad cholesterol is below 70. You get regression. The arteries start to open up. And that benefits in a dose-response curve until it's at least about 20. And, and really, that's what statins do, right? They lower bad, lousy cholesterol, Correct. right? That's right. I mean, and, and thereby they lower total cholesterol? They lower total cholesterol. They lower bad cholesterol. They don't do much for triglycerides. They don't do much for the good or the HDL cholesterol. So why, isn't, uh, why aren't we putting statins in the water? Well, there's a lot of people that don't want to take statins. There are side effects. Muscle aches, you can get those with them. There's some uh, people that have thought they've had memory problems. That's never really borne out. Uh, diabetes may be a little more likely. However, the only people that become diabetic are the ones that were going to be diabetic anyway. Mm-hmm. And they get diabetes about two months earlier on the statin than not. How is heart, di- uh, how is heart disease diagnosed? Well, the unfortunately, half of all diagnoses are the first symptom is a heart attack. Really? Is that right? But unfortunately, those folks, it's probably because if we did an angiogram, took pictures of their arteries, our angio means artery, gram means picture. The day arteries that supply the heart. Supply the heart. We took an angiogram the day before the heart attack. We would say, don't worry, there's no, no bad narrowing there. So it's not a, a narrowing that just slowly occurs over time. It's one that all of a sudden, boom, you get a tear of the lining of the artery, a blood clot forms like a cork in a bottle and closes it off. So you can't, that, I've never known that before. The day before, you can't run a test and see that it's complete, it'll look completely fine. It's not like having a baby where you can figure it out. Wow. Well, it, it, that test wouldn't, wouldn't be very predictive, but there are, are ways that you can examine someone, do some other tests, and predict, give them a pretty good idea of what their chances of having a heart attack are, right? Or over, heart disease? Over time, over yeah. 10 years, you can't say, okay, next week, tomorrow, something like that. All right, so let's talk about prevention. Uh, obviously, uh, physical activity is important. Um, diet, and, and when you when you talk about that, when you sit down and talk to your patients about diet and what you ought to be eating, what do you tell them? What, what do you recommend? Well, the the studies that have over and over and over again been shown to be beneficial is the what we call the Mediterranean diet, more of a Mediterranean lifestyle. Buy fresh foods. You know, over 56% of the calories we eat in this country is processed foods, unfortunately. Try to get fresh fruits. Try to get more fruits and vegetables. Try to get maybe only three ounces of red meat a day, which is a deck of cards. Uh, try to increase uh, your uh, olive oil consumption or monounsaturated fats like olive oil, avocado oil, nuts, things like that. Those studies have shown to reduce heart attacks, stroke, Alzheimer's, erectile dysfunction, uh, Parkinson's disease. Well, now you're talking Arth- about something important. Arthritis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, put that erectile dysfunction at the top of that list. Maybe more exactly, people yeah, maybe pay that attention. Would, that would help. Yeah. And the first diet shown to reduce female sexual dysfunction. People say a calorie is not a calorie, mm-hmm. but when you're talking about heart disease, how does sugar play into the important that in your diet? How does well, that play in? Unfortunately, many people get on these high-fat diets, low-fat diets, whatever. If you go on a real low-fat diet, you probably are going to go on a high-carbohydrate or high-sugar diet. It's really hard to eliminate just one thing from your diet. Mm-hmm. So we tell people to try to eat a balance of all three because it really comes down to calories. Let's talk about high blood pressure and what's the connection between elevated blood pressure and heart disease and why is it so important to keep your blood pressure under control? Well, the heart pump beats 100,000 times a day. It's a very unusual pump in that it pumps its own energy supply. 
you know, most pumps you plug into the wall or something, but this poor guy has to pump and he doesn't get a, uh, a second off, he or she, you know, it's 100,000 times a day. So it has to pump, it has to pump against high pressure, that's more work it has to do, kind of like lifting weights. And that's okay for a few minutes, but not for all day long. So is that high blood pressure you had said when we were talking about how was heart disease diagnosed? Half of them are a heart attack. That's how you find out you've got heart disease. The rest of them, is it diagnosed because of high blood pressure? Is that how you figure out you've got heart disease? Uh, well, or someone gets symptoms. They may get a little chest discomfort. They may get some regular heartbeats. They may feel lightheaded or something. They go and see their physician or their caregiver, and they find the heart disease then with a stress test or some sort of other testing. I remember you saying that one of the last times that you were on uh, about how many more miles of blood vessels your heart has to pump your blood through if you uh, gain so much weight or have so yeah. much more fat. Is, one, pound, one pound of fat, five miles of blood vessels. So your heart pumps 100,000 times a day, one pound, extra 500,000 miles. No, extra how many? Five, five miles. 500,000 miles. Oh, your heart because you multiplied it by 100,000. Right. So did you hear that? I did. One I, pound of fat, five more miles of blood vessels. Listen, I don't need more reasons why I need to be losing no, weight. No, I didn't say <laughs> just for a second that you needed to lose weight. No, yeah, I'm just yeah, saying. But there might be this someone is America. in our audience. Yeah. yeah, this is America's problem. But there is hope. There is hope. If fitness versus fatness. It's very clear, getting clear, that fitness trumps fatness, meaning the people that are even ideal weight, if they're not fit, their right. heart, they don't get the benefits of being normal weight. You've got to get your heart in shape, get your body in shape. So that is more important than the weight that you are? It's the fitness level that you are? The fitness level. Wow. And uh, the, the way you do that is you sort of like interval training. That's the 30-second uh, intervals where you go all out yeah. and then uh, rest and then do it again when you can. If it's a time you, thing. Yeah. We, who has time to go to the gym for an hour, three times, four times a week? And as far as activity is concerned for people who might have arthritis or, or whatever, do you like the elliptical? Ellipticals are great. It's not pounding like you do on the pavement or on a treadmill. Bikes are good, too. You like the bike, you like the treadmill, and uh, you like, like the interval run. training. Huh? Yeah, you, I just well, like to uh, run. Yeah, but you're young. You can still <laughs> run. Yeah, that's a good thing. Well, February is Heart um, uh, American Heart Month, and we've been talking with heart disease awareness and prevention specialist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Kopetsky. Yeah, Thank if, you. if it weren't for Lyndon Baines Johnson, you wouldn't even be here. <laughs> a good Texan. Yeah, that's right. Thanks so much, Dr. Kopetsky. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the Healthy Living Program at Mayo Clinic. And later on the show, we'll talk with a Mayo Clinic radiologist and get an update on the latest imaging techniques. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Eczema, or atopic dermatitis, is an immune sensitivity disease that affects as many as 30% of children. And the immune system cells secrete a lot of irritating and acidic proteins that cause the skin to break down. The result is a rash that may form in the bends of a child's arms and legs on his hands, feet, or face. 
Atopic dermatitis is not a disease that we can cure. But Mayo Clinic pediatric dermatologist Dr. Don Davis says new research shows eczema can be controlled or reduced through regular moisturizing. The most highly recommended product is petroleum jelly. Our recent study concluded that daily application of simple petroleum jelly for the first six months of a child's life can reduce the risk for eczema. People want a magic wand, and unfortunately, it's not like that. However, Dr. Davis says daily moisturizing with petroleum jelly is an easy, affordable way to offer more protection against the rash and itch of eczema. And in other news, brain games might really help ward off dementia. Mayo Clinic researchers found that engaging in mentally stimulating activities, even late in life, may protect against new-onset mild cognitive impairment, which is the intermediate stage between normal cognitive aging and dementia. The study found that cognitively normal people 70 or older who engaged in computer use, craft activities, social activities, and playing games had a decreased risk of developing mild cognitive impairment. The results are published in the January 30th edition of JAMA Neurology. They found that persons who performed these activities at least one to two times per week had less cognitive decline than those who engaged in the same activities only two to three times per month or less. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, while most of us realize that changing our diet and increasing our activity level could probably, should, would improve our health, saying it and doing it, of course, are two different things. But the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, it's a relatively new program, but it is aimed at improving a patient's health through three pillars of wellness, physical activity, nutrition, and here's one that I haven't heard too often, resiliency. In the Healthy Living Program, a team of experts work one-on-one to design individualized wellness plans and provide ongoing support even after participants return home and jump back into their busy daily lives. <laughs> Here to discuss the Healthy Living Program and the physical activity component of that program is Dan Gaze. Mr. Gaze is a wellness expert specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dan. It's nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dan. Good to have you. Thanks. So you are a, I think it's wellness exercise specialist. Is yes. that your title? That's correct. All right. What does it mean? And tell us about that the program that you are involved in. So the Healthy Living Program is relatively new, like you mentioned. Um, it sits atop the employee facility, the Dan Abraham Healthy Living Center. Um, and Mr. Abraham was very grateful and gave us some more money to, to open this vision of wellness that he had for the employees to the whole community and beyond. So on a daily basis, we see individuals that are with us for one day, for maybe eight hours, all the way up to four days for one of our programs called the Signature uh, Program. So depending on what their goals are, they come to us to look for ways to improve their sleep, improve their uh, resiliency, improve their physical activity, their nutrition. So it embodies all of our pillars of wellness. And, and on a regular basis, my role is to do some physical activity assessments, and that ranges from uh, cardiovascular testing, so a, a maximal treadmill test or bike test, we do DEXA scans for body composition, so folks know, uh, unfortunately, they don't like these numbers, but how much body fat they have and how much <laughs> muscle they have. It's, it's a very humbling experience, but a great place to start for someone that needs to figure out how to lose weight and also increase their, their lean muscle mass, because that's a really important thing to have as we age. I don't need Dan to tell me <laughs> that I need to be exercising more, but how is this different, or how does it help someone who obviously knows I need to get 
myself into shape. The biggest thing is the level of accountability that our guests get. And it's important to note that we don't call them patients because it's a wellness-based where there's no diagnostic component to anything that we do. It's all preventative medicine, wellness-based types of assessments. So if someone comes in and they know that they have a, a wonky knee, we'd send them to, to orthopedics if they needed a further evaluation. But folks that come to us get these assessments and we actually give them wellness coaching, whether they're here for a two-day or a four-day visit, they get a wellness coach for six months up to a year for follow-up. So this, there's this inherent level of accountability in terms of our wellness coaches that are talking to them every week, following up with them, making sure they're meeting their goals and achieving these things we call experiments. When you say they or guests, who, who are they? They are everybody. We are open to the public. It's a, a cash model, so we don't take insurance at the time. So we're taking anyone that wants to come to us and look for that is looking for uh, an overhaul, essentially, in their lifestyle, uh, whether it be physically. Why did he look at me? Because <laughs> <laughs> you've got the fat wallet. I'm just, yeah. gonna, I'm just sitting with my face looking down. But is it really, as he just said, the fat wallet? Is it something that is cost prohibitive? Are you finding people that are saying, this is exactly what I need? We are finding people that are committed to seeing a healthy lifestyle change. And if that means that they have the means to do so, that's one way. But we're also seeing people that have saved for quite a bit of time to invest literally and figuratively into their health. And that's the, the most rewarding thing is when you see folks come in and they're there and they're 100% committed to me, to lifestyle change, to our wellness coaches, to our staff, to following up with, with anyone they need to follow up with when they leave. The biggest thing is we can do as much as we want when they're there, but when they leave, we can't move in with all these folks. We've got to got to help them. Okay, so uh, it, medical insurance, health insurance does not cover what you do. No. Okay, so it's cash up front. Yes. Uh, and you can sign up for, did you say a two-day program or three-day or four-day? Sure. So the least amount of time someone can spend with us is part of our assessment packages. We have two of those. One of them is the enhanced uh, package. One of them is the optimized package. And essentially, folks go through all of our battery of testing, and they are focused on physical activity. There's no nutrition or wellness coaching or resiliency component. Those range between five and $800 to spend five to eight hours with us. Okay. So one day for $800. Yeah. Yes, sir. All right, and and that that does it. That's pretty much uh, exercise based. And so they would go through all the assessments, and they would leave with a plan in their hands and an email from us with plans to follow, programs to follow, and depending on what their level of exercise experience is, we can get very detailed one to two to three to four days worth of exercise. But if we notice, and we can typically do a good job of noticing this from the beginning, people that are scared of exercise or haven't exercised in a while, that's not the best approach to give them. So we can generalize it and make it very, very doable for when they go home. Okay, so that's the, the one program. Then what's the what's the... What are the alternatives? So there's a two-day Mayo Clinic diet experience, and that's based off the very successful Mayo Clinic diet book. And folks there are really focused on losing weight. Uh, prerequisite for that is they have to finish phase one of the diet book program, which means they have to finish the lose it phase. So they need to really be steeped in the, the mindset that Dr. Hensrud and others have, have really focused on in that, in that book, that very successful book. Um, that one runs about $1,000, but I'm not 100% correct. So that's two days where so you get both uh, uh, nutritional advice plus exercise Plus exercise, no? plus uh, a wellness coach for a year follow-up. Oh, wow. But via the Internet, email. 
uh, email or over the phone, but then they actually have sessions when they're on site in person. I thought maybe they were going to come into Caribou and drag me out of there. <laughs> so we got the one-day program. We got the two-day program. What else? We've got the signature program. So that's four days. Uh, it encompasses all of our pillars of wellness, so resiliency, physical activity, and nutrition. They spend a lot of time in didactic learning sessions with a lot of our experts talking about some of Dr. Sood's principles with smart, uh, healthy sleep, a lot of things like mindful eating. They get to meet with a dietitian, follow their food journals, meet with folks like me and a, and a physical therapist, go, th- go through a full movement screen, get some very specific, tailored to them, cardiovascular experiences and physical activity, strength training experiences. And they also get the wellness coach for six months follow-up after that, so once they leave. All right, so the folks that are listening, because we're on over 100 stations across the country that are unable to come to the Healthy Living Program or for some reason do not want to come to Rochester, Minnesota in January, (laughs) what what can they do at the beginning of this new year? It's always resolution time to jumpstart. The biggest thing is to make it past February 18th. (laughs) That is the day that that fitness centers see a very steep decline in member attendance. That's when I usually start going Mm. back to the gym, (laughs) is after that day. Um, But really the best thing is to to think about what your plan might be. Start with SMART goals, so something that's very specific, something you can measure, something that's attainable. Um, You wouldn't want to say that I want to run a marathon tomorrow. Start with just trying to walk around the block if you're not active, then incorporate some walking and jogging, doing different kinds of things that interest you, especially here it's, it's, it's hard to get outdoors, but if we find things that we like outside, it's easier. Um, work out with friends or a spouse. Adherence rates are very high when you work out with someone. Go to classes, even invest money in a personal trainer or programs like I just talked about because research has shown that if you have a financial incentive, you're going to do better. And the website where people can find out more information? Healthyliving.mayoclinic.org. All right, Mr. Dan Gaze, a wellness exercise specialist, part of the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear about the latest innovations in radiology. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, believe it or not, it all began back in 1895. I don't think I was even born then. And <laughs> Almost. <laughs> that's no. when Wilhelm Röntgen first discovered the X-ray in his laboratory in Würzburg, Germany. And Röntgen is the guy who is credited with being the father of radiology. After all, I mean, he took the very first X-ray that ever was made. And you know what he X-rayed? I don't know if I want to know. His wife's hand. Oh, It okay. fell off a couple of weeks later. I think. Oh, no. Modern-day radiologists are medical doctors who work with physicians and other departments to diagnose and treat diseases and injuries. Well, in the more than 100-year history of radiology at the Mayo Clinic, the field has seen a huge number of advances in imaging technology. Things like ultrasound, computer tomography, or CT scan, magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, and positron emission tomography, also known as a PET scan, all that. Actually, all that since I came on the staff, although we were starting to use CT scans when wow. I came on the staff. So that's how much that field has advanced how in valuable the past 30 you are. or 40 years. No, I had nothing to do with it. 
<laughs> Just that you've been here for it is exactly. what's important. I watched it all happen. Here to discuss radiology at Mayo Clinic and the latest innovations is radiologist Dr. Adam Weisbrod. Welcome to the program, Dr. Weisbrod. It's good to meet you. Thank you for having me on the show. So some of our listeners may not know that, in fact, radiologists are medical doctors. They went to medical school. They did a, a residency. And sometimes uh, a fair number of you also do special training, correct? Correct, yeah. So medical school, four years, five years in the residency, and then do a one- or two-year uh, subspecialty training in a fellowship uh and um, so th- that would be like I want to learn more about PET scan, or I want to learn more true. about d- MRI, nuclear medicine, cross-sectional imaging, uh, neuroimaging of the brain, uh, musculoskeletal imaging. Um, so why did you decide to become a radiologist? Uh, so. I've always been very fascinated by by two things, uh, anatomy and technology. And in medicine, uh, you know, I wanted to take care of patients. That was a great way to pair those two together. As Dr. Shives said, through the course of his career, a lot of these things have come into practice. So what is it that the future holds for what uh, what tools radiologists will have? Um, well, one of the things uh, that we had just installed one of the first uh, clinical PET-MR scanners in the entire uh, country. And so we're taking, like you mentioned before, PET scanner and MR scanners. We're putting those together, and we're re- really pushing the envelope for, for what we can do. Uh, pet what's, M- yeah, what's yeah. the benefit of that machine? Well, people may be familiar with a, a PET-CT scanner, which is something where we have uh, the PET portion of the exam that is detecting... Uh, uh, we inject an IV uh, intravenously. We inject a radio tracer into a patient's arm, and then in certain areas of the body, you accumulate this radio tracer. For instance, when we're looking for cancer in areas where there uh, there can be cancer foci, mm-hmm. so we use it to detect cancer. And often we pair that with a CT scan, and we overlay those two so that we can find out with a CT scan where in the body is this radio tracer accumulating. Where do we suspect there's cancer? What we've done is we have now replaced the CT portion of that exam with an MR exam and using some of the benefits of MR and pairing that with PET. So the, the PET shows you where the cancer is. The CT or the MRI scan actually gives you a picture of the cancer itself. It can, and it's done for a few different reasons, but uh, importantly, it can more uh, the – if you look at an image of just a PET without the CT or the MR, it's mm-hmm. very grainy, hard to tell really where the where in the liver for instance a cancer could be but when you use this technology you're able to more uh, fine-tune where this cancer could be what lobe of the liver what segment of the liver and that can be helpful for shows you exactly where mm-hmm. and size and dimensions etc you know the other big deal in radiology now is this 3d imaging tell us about that uh, <clears throat> Several years ago, uh, radiology was approached uh, to help uh, in surgical planning for a set of conjoined twins to help separate them, and we were approached to come up with a 3D-printed model of their complex anatomy to help with the surgical planning. Since then, we've been requested to do a lot of other uh, 3D-printed models, uh, and that practice has really grown. Uh, We've had a 3D anatomic modeling lab in radiology for approximately eight years. We're doing uh, over 500 models every year now, uh, and 
it's it's a it's an industrial uh, 3D printed model, uh, but what it provides us is with a true life size uh, model or replica of what an an organ or complex anatomy is. So, for instance, if a patient has a tumor in a kidney, you can define that kidney, where the tumor is, where those critical adjacent structures are, like the arteries, the veins, the ureter, um, and this has been very helpful for the surgeons in doing their planning so they know before they get into the operating room they get a better uh, idea of where those nerves are they're able to actually touch this model they're able to manipulate it in space and and that can be very helpful for them uh for their planning it's just like a, a plastic model of the patient if somebody has a big tumor of their pelvis and you can go and you can study the mri and you can study the ct and you can look at the pet but when somebody actually hands you the patient's pelvis only a plastic model of it, you can see exactly. It's incredible. Yes. And, and it's been not only helpful to our surgeons, but to our patients. You know, it can be a, a difficult task to be able to not only describe the surgery that they're going to undertake or why there's certain risks to the surgery, uh, but also to try and show that with a two-dimensional image of the CT or the MR scan on the screen. But having a model the patient can actually hold and feel and see can really help them conceptualize what the surgery is where the certain uh, cuts are going to be and, and why there are some of the risks there are with those surgeries. All right, let's talk about tumor ablation because that's <laughs> something that you said uh, radiology helps us with. What is it, first of all? So uh, in our tumor ablation practice, in, uh, we hear every day until patients come to Mayo Clinic, they had said, you know, I've never heard about the possibility of tumor ablation for our tumors, and what is it? It's a minimally invasive procedure where we guide small needles with CT or ultrasound into these tumors, and uh, we use some needles that are called radiofrequency electrodes or microwave antenna that heat up the tips of these needles to such high temperatures that they destroy the tumor cells, or we use a cryoablation needle, which the uh, tips of the needles actually form ice that encompasses the tumor and destroys the tumor cells. You can burn it or you can freeze it. That's right. Yep. And it, it, it's incredible because you can get to sites that are very difficult to access surgically or for patients who aren't necessarily surgical candidates, but they have a, a tumor in their pelvis or around their hip or in, particularly in their spine. You can go in there and ablate the tumor, get rid of it with a needle. It's Amazing. So how do you decide whether you're going to freeze it or burn it? Uh, there some of the uh, some of the decisions are made for freezing for instance like you mentioned we're able to see the ice ball on CT scan or MR imaging so when we're close to nerves and critical structures like that it's very helpful to be able to see mm -hmm. exactly where that ice stops and where that nerve is so we can protect it from injury uh, liver uh, tumors are typically treated with a heat-based therapy. Uh, so it's many different factors, uh, and some of them are patient-specific and indication-specific. Uh, so uh, sometimes also uh, tell our listeners about the injection of cement. Let's say that you've ablated a tumor. What? Uh, <laughs> cement. <laughs> okay. Uh, you've uh, ablated a tumor in the um, in the spine, mm -hmm. uh, and but that bone is weak and uh, oh. potentially could collapse. So to keep it from collapsing, tell us what you do after you burn the tumor. So or in frozen it. 
what we also want to do is provide structural support. And so through some of the same ports that we're uh, placing these needles, we're also able through uh, different cannulated needles to place cement that provides structural support to prevent future collapse of, like you said, a, a vertebral body. Uh, see, so I you- thought he was pulling my leg. No. <laughs> this is what the life with Dr. Shives is like. I thought he was kidding me, but you're serious. So you put it in, the, the cement goes in in a liquid form, and then after a few minutes it solidifies. And it, it is like concrete. It's amazing. It's pretty cool being a radiologist. Don't I you guess. Think? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Dr. Adam Weisbrod, radiologist at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for bringing us up to date on all the great stuff you're doing. Thanks for having me here. That's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.